Support for the gray area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show, all you wonderful listeners of the Ezra Klein Show. I am thrilled about my guest this week. It is Yuval Noah Harari, who is the author of the incredible mind-bending runaway bestseller Sapiens a couple years back, and most recently of the new book Homo Deus. I do not know how to describe these books except to say they are some of the most brilliant and provocative and strange and who knows, potentially wrong books I've read in recent years, but they are worth reading. They are absolutely fascinating. They will make you think about the world around you in a different way. Sapiens was a huge hit. It has been recommended and talked about on this show by Bill Gates. It's been recommended in public by President Barack Obama, by Mark Zuckerberg. It had a huge audience and and for good reason. It is a completely unique view of human history, of what makes us us, of why we came to dominate the earth over other species. And his new book, Homo Deus, is about our future, which is in many ways, in his view, grim, but not not without its moments of hope. We talk in this podcast about the book. We talk a lot about meditation. I had found while researching this that Harari is a dedicated meditator, that he does two hours a day, that he goes to 60-day meditation retreats every single year. And I did not realize until we began discussing this just how much it influenced the books, how much context it was for how he writes and what he writes. So that was fascinating for me. I hope it will be for you. We talk about drugs and uh, the government's attitude towards them. We talk about whether or not the way human beings treat animals is the right way to think about how an artificial intelligence will treat us. We talk about what will happen to people when there is artificial intelligence, whether they'll become economically useless. I have somewhat less pessimistic views on this than others, and we, we debate those a bit. So this is a great episode. I enjoyed it tremendously. I think you will too. As always, a couple quick requests. Please Rate the podcast on iTunes, subscribe, send it to your friends, Facebook, Twitter on hashtag the EK show. I'm always grateful when you spread the word. It is how we grow. Check out my other podcast, The Weeds, with Sarah Cliff and Matt Iglesias, where we talk about public policy. And finally, continue to send your guest requests to Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. That said, without further ado, here is Yuval Harari. Yuval Harari, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hello. It's good to be here. It's great to have you. Let me begin with something I learned while I was getting ready for this interview, which is that you're a dedicated meditator. Uh, yes, I am. I do two hours of meditation every day, Vipassana meditation. And every year I go for a long retreat of between 30 and 60 days. 
just did one in, in November, December. For folks who don't know, what is Vipassana meditation? How might it differ from the meditation they're used to? Well, it's really the only technique I've, I've ever learned from a teacher called Essen Goenka, so I can't really comment on, on differences with, with other meditations. But basically, you just learn how to observe the reality of the present moment as it is. It's based on the understanding that everything that happens in our mind is deeply connected to what happens in the body, that you cannot really separate the two. So you focus your attention, you try to focus your attention on body sensations, and this is extremely difficult. When I first started it 17 years ago, uh, the first exercise is really just to focus on the breath coming in and out of your nostrils. And I thought, oh, this would be very easy. I mean, what's the difficulty in, in observing your breath? And it's the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. I mean, you try to observe your breath coming, just focus on the breath coming in and out of your nostrils. And if after 10 seconds, the mind goes away to some fantasy, some dream, some memory. It's just so difficult to just stay with the reality of the present moment without running away to all kinds of mental constructs and, and, and fantasies and dreams. So something that struck me when I was reading about your, your work in this practice is that you've said that you would be a far worse historian, not just less happy, but a far worse historian without the meditation. You told The Guardian that you'd still be researching medieval military history, but not the Neanderthals <laughs> or cyborgs. And, and I wanted to know, what changes has that practice brought to you that changed the way you did history? What changes has it brought to you that have left you researching cyborgs and not medieval history? Well, two things mainly. First of all, it's, it's the ability to focus. Um, when you train the mind to focus on something like the breath, it also gives you the discipline to focus on much bigger things and to really tell the difference between what's important and what to pay attention to and everything else. And this is a discipline that I've brought to my scientific career as well. Uh, it's so difficult, especially when you deal with long-term history, to get bogged down in the small details or to be distracted by a million different tiny stories and, and concerns. And it's so difficult to just stay on track and keep reminding yourself what is really the most important thing that has happened in history or what is the most important thing that is happening now in the world. And the discipline to have this focus, I really got from the meditation. The other major contribution, I think, is that the entire exercise of, of Vipassana meditation is to learn the difference between fiction and reality. What is real and what is just stories that we invent and construct in our own minds? And almost 99% is, you, you realize, is just stories in, in our minds. And this is also true of history. Most people, they just get overwhelmed by the religious stories, by the national stories, by the economic stories of the day, and they take these stories to be the reality. And my main ambition, I think, as a historian is to really be able to tell the difference between what's really happening in the world and what are the fictions that humans have been creating for thousands of years in order to explain or in order to control what's happening in the world. And this ability to tell the difference between fiction and reality, I think, was the key to my career as a historian, as well as something that was very, very helpful in my personal lives. 
that's such an interesting thing for you to say. So for, for those who haven't read Sapiens, one of the things that is central to the book and was mind bending for me when I read it was you argue that the central quality of Homo sapiens, what has allowed us to dominate the earth, is the ability to tell stories, the ability to create fictions that create a shared understanding of reality or a shared motivation for reality that permits widespread cooperation in a way other groups can't. And what was so strange to me and interesting to me in the way you framed that was that you, what you count as a fiction, your spectrum ranges all the way from early mythology to the constitution of the United States of America, that, that it all is us being able to tell stories that put us on the same page. And I, I wouldn't have connected that to the way meditation changes what you see as real, but it makes sense when you put it that way, that if you're observing the way your mind creates imaginary stories, maybe much more ends up falling into that category than you originally thought. Uh, yeah, exactly. We seldom realize it, but all large-scale human cooperation is based on fiction. This is most clear in the case of religion, especially other people's religion. You can easily understand that, yes, millions of people come together to cooperate in a crusade or a jihad or to build a cathedral or a synagogue because all of them believe some fictional story about God and heaven and hell. What is much more difficult to realize is that exactly the same dynamic operates in all other kinds of human cooperation, also in modern politics and modern economics. If you think about human rights, human rights are a fictional story, just like God and heaven. They are not a biological reality. Biologically speaking, humans don't have rights. If you take a Homo sapiens and look inside, you find the heart and the kidneys and the DNA. You don't find any rights. The only place rights exist is in the stories that people have been inventing not so long ago, just a few centuries ago, and spreading around and believing. Now, I don't want to imply that this is bad. Stories are not necessarily bad. They are the basis for human cooperation. Some stories are certainly worse than others in terms of, of the suffering that they cause. But uh, we cannot have a functioning society without some fictions. Another very good example is money. Money is probably the most successful story ever told. It has no objective value. It's not like a banana or a coconut that you can actually do something with. If you take a dollar bill and look at it, you can't eat it, you can't drink it, you can't wear it. It's absolutely worthless. We think it's worth something because we believe a story. We have these master storytellers of our society, our shamans. They are the bankers and financiers and the chairperson of the Federal Reserve. And they come to us with this amazing story that you see this green piece of paper. We tell you that it is worth one banana. And if I believe it, and you believe it, and everybody believes it, it works. It actually works. I can take this worthless piece of paper, go to a complete stranger whom I never met before, give him this piece of paper, worthless piece of paper, and he, in exchange, will give me a real banana that I can eat. This is really amazing, and no other animal can do it. Other animals sometimes trade. Chimpanzees, for example, they trade. You give me a coconut, I'll give you a banana. That can work with a chimpanzee. But you give me a worthless piece of paper, and you expect me to give me a banana, that will never work with a chimpanzee. And this is why we control the world and not the chimpanzees. 
because our common stories, our common fictions enable us to cooperate on the economic or political or religious level in far more sophisticated ways than any other animal. But there are ways in which those stories create fragility. And I thought this was interesting based off of your money example. So you take something like the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And what happened there was the global financial markets had told themselves a story. They had told themselves a story about how much risk there was in particularly subprime mortgage debt. And then that story turned out to be wrong. And all of a sudden, they had to tell themselves a different story. And then all the stories built on that story, how much everything else was worth, how stocks in the lumber industry would do, how many people would have jobs in a year, all those other stories became wrong too. And, and eventually, it was reality, right? Eventually, you were dealing with real people, real things, real demand for how much wood needed to be cut down, how much metal needed to be shipped into America. But it seems to me that a fragility here is when you begin to mistake your stories for reality. And you overestimate both their permanence and how difficult it would be for them to be, be changed or moved. Yes, I mean, it goes both ways. Human society is far more flexible and dynamic than any other society on Earth. And at the same time, it's also far more fragile. And both is because it's based on stories. If you think, for example, about revolutions, among other animals, it's very difficult to... To change the social system overnight it's almost impossible if you think about for example a beehive the bees they have their social system for millions and millions of years and they cannot change it unless through a very slow and very complicated process of natural selection and, and evolution the bees cannot just wake up one morning execute the queen bee and establish a communist dictatorship of worker bees it cannot be done. But among humans, we do have such social revolutions. Exactly a century ago, 1917, you had the communist revolution in Russia. So the revolutionaries executed the Tsar and established a completely different social system in Russia within a few years just by changing the story in which Russians believe. They no longer believed in the divine right of, of the Tsar. Instead, they now believe that authority comes from the workers, uh, from the people. So it gives the society immense flexibility. But at the same time, as you say, it also makes human society far more fragile because so much is based just on figments of our own imagination. And sometimes it, it collides with, with reality in such a way that it cannot be sustained. And another danger is that there is always the danger that people would stop believing in the common story and then everything, everything falls apart. And this is why every society invests so much effort in propaganda and in images and in brainwashing people from a very early age to believe in the dominant story of the society. Because if they don't believe, everything collapses. Before we leave the topic of meditation, I meditate or try to meditate daily, so I probably make it four or five times a week, but not for nearly two hours. And I've never done a retreat. And I read that you've done that you do routinely 60-day retreats. And yes. that is an experience that I almost cannot imagine. So I would love to hear what those are like for you and what role they serve in, in your life. Let me think for a moment. Well, it's, it's, first of all, it's very difficult. It's not like a feel-good meditation that you just go and relax. Uh, no, it's, it's kind of a very deep mental operation you're doing on yourself. 
and you come across the things you don't want to encounter. You come across the things you don't like about yourself, the things you don't like about the world, and that you spend so much time in ignoring or in suppressing. And when you sit for 60 days just meditating and you don't have any distractions, you don't have television, you don't have emails, no phones, no books, you don't write, you just have every moment focused what is really happening right now, what is reality. And you start with the most, as I said, the most basic bodily sensations of the breath coming in and out, of sensations in your stomach, in your legs. And as you connect to that, you gain the ability to really observe what's happening. You also get clarity with regard to what's happening in your mind. I mean, you cannot really observe anger or fear or boredom If you cannot observe your breath, your breath is, is so much easier than observing your anger or, or your fear. I mean, people want to, to, to understand their anger and to understand their fear. They think this is something very important. And they think that observing the breath, oh, this is, this is not important at all. What's the connection? But if you can't observe something as obvious and as simple as the breath coming in and out, you have absolutely no chance of really observing your anger, which is far more stormy and far more difficult. So what happens along the 60 days is that as your mind becomes more focused and more clear, you go deeper and deeper and you start seeing the deep sources of where all this anger is coming from, where all this fear is coming from, and you just observe. You don't try to do anything. You don't tell any stories about your anger. You don't try to fight it. You just observe what is anger or what is boredom. You live sometimes for years and years and years experiencing anger and fear and, and boredom every day. And you never really observe how does it actually feel to be angry because you're too caught up in the anger. And the 60 days of meditation, they give you the, the opportunity, like you have a wave of anger And sometimes it, it can last for days. And you just for days, you do nothing. You just observe, what is anger? How does it actually feel in, in the body? What is actually happening in my mind when I'm angry? And this is the most uh, amazing thing that I've ever observed, is really to observe these internal phenomena. It fascinates me that you have... The presence or the commitment to, to continue doing this. I mean, Sapiens was an, an international runaway bestseller. It's a huge hit in Silicon Valley. When I had Bill Gates on this podcast, he recommended Sapiens to me and to the audience. Mark Zuckerberg has talked about Sapiens. Barack Obama has talked about Sapiens. I imagine the demands of near time, the, the speaking engagements, the paid speaking engagements, the great, fascinating conferences and meetings that you get invited to now. I'm sure there's vastly more than you can do. And so you must rate this quite highly to take a month to two months out of your year every single year to do this. So that to me is a very powerful statement. And I'm, I'm curious if it has felt changed at all in the past couple of years after your success. Well, there is always a temptation to, oh, let's instead of, of doing this, let's take a, a, another speaking engagement or another conference. But I'm very disciplined about it because I know this is the really important stuff. I mean, and this is the, the source of also my scientific success. 
So when I plan the year in advance, my schedule, the first thing I do is I already like I know that in 2017, I'm going from the 15th of October to the 15th of December to India to sit a 60 days meditation retreat. And that's the first thing I put in the schedule. Everything else has to be arranged around that. And it was the same last year in 2016, also November, December, I actually heard about the Trump election only on the 20th of January. Because this is when I came out of the, the retreat. I entered in early November and I, I kind of missed the, the elections. And as I said, you have absolutely no distractions. You have no connections with the outside world, no emails, no television, no nothing. So you don't know what's happening on the outside. But what's happening on the inside is, is so interesting. So, you know, you, you can live for two months without emails and without tweets and without funny cat videos. And in a way, even on, on a daily basis... I often think that, you know, we have 24 hours a day and most of the day I'm distracted. I'm overwhelmed by all the emails and all the funny cat videos and all the YouTube clips and, and so forth. So at least for two hours, I'm really in touch with reality. For 22 hours, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by all this. But for two hours, I just sit and observe what is really happening right now. And I think one of them... Historically speaking, one of the most problematic things that have happened to humankind over the last century is that we have really lost touch with the immediate reality of what's happening here and now and even what's happening in our own bodies. We have lost touch with our sensations, with our sensory world. Previously, if you lived, for example, as a hunter-gatherer or even as a peasant, you had to be very aware of what's happening right here, right now. You have to be very aware of what I hear, what I smell, what I touch, because your life depends on it. If you go to the forest to look for mushrooms and you don't listen or you don't smell what, what, everything around you, you're dead in 10 minutes. So these people were very much in touch with the sensory world. And over the last century, we have lost touch with our sensations. We pay less and less attention to what we feel and smell and taste and hear. And we pay far more attention to all kinds of screens and to things that are happening some other place, some other time. And I think that one of the deep sources today of the alienation that many people feel is not just social processes, it's above all that they are disconnected from their bodies, from their sensations, and you cannot really feel at home anywhere, anytime, if you're disconnected from the sensory world. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. The internet is big, and if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small. Hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web, with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point-of-sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com slash vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vox. 
Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Beyond the, the two hours of meditation you do daily, how do you structure the information you receive during the day? As you're trying to work on a book or as you're just trying to, as you say it, understand what that is happening right now is real and important and what is ephemera or mere stories. How do you structure mm -hmm. the inputs you're getting to have the most signal and the least noise? I try to set my own agenda and not to allow technology to set the agenda for me, not to allow the television and uh, the Twitter and YouTube and so forth to take me on a ride. I tend to read books, long books, rather than short passages or tweets. I tend to look at the long term and not at the short term, and in such a way to stay a little away, maybe a little above, from all the frenzy of the immediate information storm. I think another thing that has happened over the last century is that we have moved from an information scarcity to uh, a deluge of information. If previously the main problem with information for people was that they didn't have enough of it and there was censorship and information was very rare and how to obtain, now it's just the opposite. We are inundated by immense amounts of information. We lose the ability to not just to make sense of it, to, but to, to just know what is really important. What should I pay attention to? And we really lose control of, of our attention. Our attention is hitchhiked by all kinds of external forces. So for me, not just in meditation, but when I work, I try to be very, very disciplined with my attention not to allow external forces to take control of my attention, to stay very focused, very on the track. How do you choose the kinds of sources you think will be valuable when you're looking for books or when you're looking for news articles? Because something that mm. I think is interesting about the work you do, you're a historian, but particularly in Homo Deus, you are not focused on the past as much as at this point you've begun to be focused on the future, which implies yes. to me that you're not just looking for the consensus best book that historians suggest on the 1890s. You have to be using information that is going to be much less vetted, that there's going to be much less recommendation around. So, so how do you find what feels valuable to you? I start reading a lot of books and I stop reading most of them after five or 10 pages. Like I would, I would start 20 books on a particular subject 
and leave most of them after five pages and then find the one that really strikes a chord with me and, and, and read it. And I, I usually think that you can gouge the quality and the depth of a book from the first five to ten pages. So I, I begin by casting a very wide net and I'm also very trigger happy to throw the book away and start something new. I'm not saying this is like a perfect system or that it would work for everybody. I'm just saying that this is how I work. It's funny to me how much context, and, and you can tell me if this is off base, but how much context this conversation gives me for, for Homo Deus. And so to give a very capsule, and this is a very, very capsule summary of the book, but you're arguing in there that human beings used to have a society centered around stories about God. They moved to one mm-hmm. in the last couple hundred years to one centered around stories about human beings. And they're moving yeah. to one that is centered around stories about data and that is yes. going to prize algorithms and prize to the degree that we will be honored. It will be for the contribution we make to the data streams that various mm. computer assisted algorithms are using to generate value and create production across society. And it's interesting because you have to a very, to an unexpected degree for me, taking yourself out of that, that if that scenario looks more acute to you than it does to me, which is how I felt reading the book, that perhaps it is because I am deeper in this and you stepping a little bit further out, the change and the degree to which everybody is obsessed and immersed in a lot of data all of the time is more clear. Uh, yeah, I think it's a very, it's a very good summary of, of Homo Deus, of, of the new book. And it certainly has a lot to do with the way that I actually live my life. Uh, it, it works both ways. I mean, the way that I live influences the way I think. And hopefully the conclusions I reach in my research feed back into the way that I live. Because just to reach a theoretical conclusion that has no influence on how you actually live, I mean, what's the point? I try that my research will not remain on a, on a theoretical basis. And when it comes to data... So the, the revolution that we are now in the, in the middle or in the beginning of, of data becoming the, the main source of authority in the world, it's not due to decisions taken just by governments and big corporations. It's very simple decisions taken by ordinary people on a day-to-day basis, how they live their lives. For example, how much authority they invest in their smartphones or in computer algorithms to tell them what to do and what is good and what is valuable. And what we see all around us is that more and more authority is shifting away from humans to computers and to algorithms, not because the government made a law, but because people invest authority in these external algorithms. This is going to be a a bit of a strange question, perhaps, but... But I think it'll set something up usefully. Do you think that in 200 or 300 years, human beings will be the dominant, and, and I'm losing my word here because species or organism mm-hmm. isn't correct given the, the possibility of artificial organisms, but, but the dominant actor on Earth? Absolutely not. I think if you ask me if 50 years, it would be a difficult question, but 300 years, it's a very easy question. In 300 years, Homo sapiens will not be the dominant life form on Earth, if it exists at all. I mean, given the current pace of technological development, 
either we destroy ourselves in some ecological or nuclear calamity, which is possible, but I think less likely. Well, it's still a possibility, so we, we have to mention it. The more likely possibility is that we will use bioengineering and machine learning and artificial intelligence either to upgrade ourselves into a totally different kind of being or to create a totally different kind of being that will take over. But in any case, in two or three hundred years, the beings that will dominate the Earth will be far more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals or from chimpanzees. One of the fascinating things about the way you frame that in the book, and I'm fascinated by how clear that prediction is to you, but before getting to that, one thing that you frame in the book that I found striking is one reason that that future scares you is that you look by analogy to the way human beings have treated animals. And I was struck by how much of Homo Deus was actually about the way that we treat pigs in a factory farm, the way the Bible spoke about animals around Noah's flood. And I'd like you to expand on that a little bit because it struck me that you were making an extrapolation, which I do not have a good argument against, but is very grim. That if Mm. we have been able to treat organisms that are so close to us in their DNA and so close to us in their biology and so close to us in their development and so close to us in their expression of emotion, as at the very least mammals are, that it will not be hard for an organism different from us, but smarter, but more powerful to treat us with a similar lack of compassion, interest, or empathy. Uh, Yes, I think that when we look at how we treat other animals, uh, especially in industrial farming, most people have two kinds of arguments to justify how we treat cows or pigs or chickens. The first argument says, oh, they don't have emotions, they don't have sensations, they can't feel pain, they can't feel fear, so it doesn't matter how we treat them. And this is still a very common argument, but from a scientific perspective, it's absolute nonsense. There is now, I think, very firm scientific consensus that all mammals, all birds, and at least some reptiles and fish, they have minds, they have awareness and consciousness, they can feel sensations and at least some kinds of emotions. They can certainly feel pain, they can certainly feel fear. So this argument that we can, it doesn't matter how we treat them, they don't feel anything, this is scientific nonsense. The other argument that people use, and you hear that more in the scientific community, is that yes, they can feel pain or fear, but we are far more intelligent than they are, and intelligence is really what counts. And a more intelligent entity has the right to exploit less intelligent entities for its own needs. And this has been a very favorite argument of human beings because for thousands of years, millions of years, we have been the most intelligent guys around. But this will no longer be the case very soon. Very soon, Homo sapiens will lose its position as the most intelligent entity on Earth. And then this argument can start working against us. 
And what can you say if some super intelligent, if some artificial intelligence starts treating humans just, you know, not caring about humans and their suffering? I mean, if it's all about intelligence, then we have no argument. If it is not just about intelligence, it's about feelings, it's about emotions, then yes, we have an argument against the AI. But exactly the same argument should compel us today to... to start treating pigs and cows and chickens differently. So one thing that I wonder when I hear this argument, and not the moral argument making, which I'm very, very sympathetic to, but the argument about AI is I wonder the degree to which the predictions made and that have become popular in Silicon Valley, predictions that you're making here about the eventual dominance of super intelligent cyber organisms. is based on an overestimation of the power of intelligence. Something that you argue mm. in, in Sapiens, a little bit less in this book, is that it isn't clear that being intelligent is such a powerful differentiator. That for most of Homo sapiens' existence on Earth, we were in the middle of the food chain. That it does not mm-hmm. look like in other areas of life that all cats have evolved to have the biggest possible brain they can. That... We ended up finding this language processing, this fiction that allowed for wide-scale cooperation. But sometimes I wonder when I, I hear these kinds of arguments about AI, whether it isn't the most cerebral class of humans, your Elon Musks and Yuval Harari's and, mm-hmm. and Bill Gates's, looking and saying, the quality I prize most in myself is the most important quality. And because I can very much imagine how AI will have better analytical processing capabilities than I do, it seems clear they will dominate. But I think the point you've made well is that it's not clear that it was our analytical capabilities that made us dominate. It was our cooperation and, and, and other mm-hmm. factors. And so does that give you pause? Is there a way in which we are overestimating or wrongly estimating what it will mean to have super powerful chess and go players in a world where, you know, some things matter are based on how much mental horsepower you have, but quite a lot isn't? I totally agree that for success, cooperation is usually more, more important than just raw intelligence. But the thing is that AI will be far more cooperative, uh, at least potentially, than humans. To take um, a famous example, everybody is now talking about self-driving cars. The huge advantage of a self-driving car over a human driver is not just that uh, as, an, as an individual vehicle, the self-driving car is likely to be safer and cheaper and more efficient than a human-driven car. The really big advantage that self-driving cars can all be connected to one another to form a single network in a way you cannot do it with human drivers. I mean, when two human drivers approach in two cars to the same junction, they don't really know what each of them is going to do. And this is why occasionally you have accidents because they don't communicate well. In the case of self-driving cars, you can connect all the vehicles on the road to a single network, and it's not really independent vehicles that have to communicate with one another. It's a single network. It's, there is very little chance that two of these puppets, two of these vehicles operated by a single network, will collide because they are not independent entities. And it's, it's the same with many other fields, like if you think about medicine, So today you have millions of human doctors 
And very often you have uh, miscommunication between different doctors. But if you switch to AI doctors, so you don't really have millions of different doctors. You have a single medical network that monitors the health of everybody in the world. If right now as we speak, a doctor in Timbuktu, an AI doctor in Timbuktu, discovers a new disease or a new treatment, this information is immediately available to my personal doctor. AI doctor on my smartphone. There is no barrier. So some of the biggest advantages of AI over humans is exactly in the field of cooperation and not just intelligence. The other remark I would like to make is that there is a lot of confusion about what artificial intelligence means or, or doesn't mean, especially in places like Silicon Valley. For me, the biggest confusion of all is between intelligence and consciousness. For many people, the two sounds, uh, they, they tend to confuse intelligence and consciousness and to assume that an artificial intelligence will inevitably also be an artificial consciousness. And inevitably, 95% of science fiction movies are based on this error. They assume that the robots will have emotions, will feel things, that humans will fall in love with them, or that they will want to destroy us and things like that. And this is not true. Intelligence is not consciousness. Intelligence is the ability to solve problems. Consciousness is the ability to feel things. In humans and other animals, the two indeed go together. The way mammals solve problems is by feeling things. Our emotions and sensations are really an integral part of the way we solve problems in our lives, like whom to mate with, or where to go, or what to be careful about. However, in the case of computers, we don't see the two going together. Over the last few decades, there has been an immense development in computer intelligence and exactly zero development in computer consciousness. And there is absolutely no reason to think and no indication that computers are anywhere near developing consciousness. They might be moving along a very different trajectory than mammalian evolution. In the case of mammals, evolution has driven mammals towards greater intelligence by way of consciousness. But in the case of computers, they might be progressing along a parallel and a very different route to intelligence that just doesn't involve consciousness at all. And we may find ourselves in a world with non-conscious superintelligence. And the big question is, is not whether the humans will fall in love with the robots or whether the robots will try to kill the humans. The big question is, how does a world of non-conscious superintelligence look like? Because we have absolutely nothing in history that uh, prepares us for such a scenario. To me, that, that right there is the most interesting question about AI. And the, and the one that I feel is almost always ignored, that... I would frame something you said a little bit differently. You talked about intelligence as the ability to solve problems and consciousness as how we feel. And that the reason we solve problems is that we have feelings that lead to the motivation, right? The feeling of anger, the feeling of pain. But in a, mm-hmm. in a more primal way, the base motivation evolution has given all creatures is to reproduce. And so much of not just human civilization, but, but 
the way all animals on Earth seem to operate is trying to secure reproduction for their species. And the thing that I always crash on when I try to imagine AI is what does superintelligence without the basic biological drivers of reproduction look like? Even if you imagine it would have something like consciousness, it wouldn't have our consciousness. It wouldn't have the eons and eons of natural selection leading to the sort of super producers, super reproducers that we've had. And AI would have powerful intelligence to solve problems. But what would its motivation be? Why would it want to solve those problems? Which problems would it want to solve? I, I feel so much of the AI conversation assumes that the AI will have the human desire for more. That it will have something mm-hmm. and then it will want more things. It will become the best Go player, but it won't be willing to stop there. It will also have to be better than anybody else at Monopoly. It will also have to be better than anyone else at playing Guitar Hero on the PlayStation. But it isn't clear to me that would be true or, or what would make it true. Well, there are many things to say about that. I mean, first of all, you're right that when we talk about AI, we need to forget everything we know about not just human motivation, but really about the biological definitions, the basic biological definitions of, of you know, biological realities. In AI, there is no such thing as species. There is no such thing as sex. There is no such thing as death. It's not true that all organisms want to reproduce sexually. It's true only of, of multicellular organisms. And in the case of multicellular organisms, death and sex were bound together. But in the case of the AI, there is no such thing as sex and there is no such thing as death. And also there is no such thing as species. So we need to think about them in a completely different setting. In the fair generations of AI, you can say that the motivation will be determined by the people who program the AI. But as machine learning kicks off, you really have no idea where it might take the AI. It will not have desires in the human sense because it, it will not have consciousness, it will not have minds. But it, it could develop its own patterns of behavior which are way beyond our ability to understand. The whole attraction of machine learning and, and deep mind and AI for the people in the industry is that the AI can start recognizing patterns and behaving and making decisions in a way that no humans can emulate or to predict. And therefore, it also means that we have no ability to really foresee where the AI will develop. This is part of the danger. If we could, it means it's not more intelligent than us. If you can really predict where the AI will go to, how it will develop, it means that it's still far inferior to human intelligence. So the really, the scenarios in which AI goes beyond human intelligence are by definition the scenarios that we cannot imagine. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kids' shoes when they get too big, or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Why, given the range of uncertainty, both about AI development and what an AI would look like? So the range of uncertainty about both whether we can do this, whether we can create artificial intelligence that has this self-exploring feature to it, which we have not done yet, and whether that would have any kind of conquering desires at all. Are you so persuaded that human beings will not be a dominant life form in 300 years? It's not because I overestimate the AI. It's because uh, most people tend to overestimate human beings. In order to replace most humans, the AI won't have to do very spectacular things. Most of the things that the political and economic system needs from human beings are actually quite simple. If we earlier talked about driving a taxi or diagnosing a disease... This is something that AI will soon be able to do better than humans, even without consciousness, even without having emotions or feelings or, or super intelligence. Because really driving a taxi demands just a very a tiny fraction of the human potential. But this is what the economic system needs from a taxi driver. And it's the same with most of what humans do today because of the process of specialization most humans today do very specific things that an AI would soon be able to do better than us. If you go back in time to the hunter-gatherer days, then it's a different story. It would be extremely difficult to build a hunting-gatherer robot that can compete with a human being. It will have to do so many different things, almost impossible. But to create a self-driving car that is better than a human taxi driver, that's easy. To create an AI doctor that diagnoses cancer better than a human doctor, that's easy. And this is what we're talking about. The social and political implications of AI are really from simple abilities, not from very complex abilities. What we are talking about in the 21st century is the possibility that most humans will lose their economic and political value they will become a kind of useless, of massive useless class, useless not from the viewpoint of their mother or of their children, useless from the viewpoint of the economic and military and political system. And once this happens, the system also loses the incentive to invest in human beings. In the 20th century, governments all over the world, even in dictatorial regimes, 
invested heavily in the health and education and welfare of masses of people because the government and the elite needed them. Even in Nazi Germany, the Nazis built hospitals and schools and invested in vaccinations and sewage systems and education because the Nazis realized very well that if they wanted a strong army and a strong economy, they needed millions of humans to serve as common soldiers and as, as factory workers. Now, this will no longer be the case, maybe, in the 21st century. In the military field, actually, it already happened. Today, in the armies, you don't need most people. Most people are militarily useless. The best armies in the world don't rely on recruiting millions of soldiers. They rely on small numbers of super warriors, kind of upgraded humans, and they rely more and more on sophisticated and autonomous technologies like drones and cyber warfare. If the same thing happens in the civilian economy, then most humans will really become both economically useless and politically powerless. And for that, you don't need the kind of science fiction AI. The AI around the corner will be enough. Let me challenge you on that and, and challenge you on that a little bit in your own terms. So th this argument that AI will quickly become able to replace human beings at, at many rote tasks and even non-rote tasks is widespread and I think probably over some time period correct. So I want to say first is for this thought experiment, there's an argument here about how rapidly that transition takes place. And you could very much imagine it taking place very quickly, which I am skeptical of. But if that happens, then all bets are off. But let's say it takes place slowly. Let's say it takes place mm -hmm. over 50, 100, 150 years. 50 years is, is, is really very quick. I, I understand. But, but it's not necessarily so quick for the economy, right? Okay. And a way of saying this is that in 1900, I, mm -hmm. I will forget the exact number, but a huge proportion, a huge proportion of the American labor force was engaged in farming. Just a tremendous number of people and percentage of the workforce mm -hmm. were in farming somehow. By 2000, that was not true at all. Farming was a very tiny percentage of the population as a percentage of workforce. And I would say that the tier point about economic uselessness, we have replaced very sort of quote unquote useful jobs like farming, mm -hmm. making food with you know, some jobs like mine, like does the world need me doing podcasts and writing articles? Does it need you writing interesting books about possible futures? I like it. It makes the world nicer. I enjoy having a job, but probably not. But what we are good at doing in the economy is telling stories about what we need. We tell stories about the green pieces of paper that form our money. And we tell stories about the value of the things you buy with those green pieces of paper. This grape juice because it has been sitting mm -hmm. around for a long time, is $1,000. And so one thing I wonder about around this transition is you may get to a point, yes, where computers are driving taxi cabs, and we are just telling each other that what we really need in life is more yoga teachers and meditation teachers. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, and, and granting, you can sort of continuously say, well, then the computer will do that. But I'm a little skeptical that we will not be able as a species to find things that we decide through necessity or through luxury or because they really are sort of wonderful, are of value. And so I just I wonder a little bit about the conflation of people being useful with people being valued because value useful is a, a normative judgment on some level. Value, to, to go back to your arguments, is a story. And we're mm. good at creating stories about what we want. 
Uh, that's definitely true. I think that the, the answer is, is on two levels. First of all, with regard to the possibility that new jobs will appear, just as farm workers move to factories and then they move to services and now they, they are yoga teachers. So the same thing will happen in the 21st century. The problem here is that humans have basically two kinds of abilities we know about, physical abilities and mental or cognitive abilities. In the past, as machines competed with us in physical abilities, in the fields and in the factories, more and more humans moved to working in jobs that require mainly cognitive abilities. Now the machines are, are starting to compete in the cognitive field as well, and we don't know of a third kind of ability that all of us could move to work in that. Can I offer one? So it's a... It's a It's a different one from in the 20th century. You said you wanted to offer yeah, one? Yeah, uh, to, to interject, mm -hmm. because I think this is the argument that, that I make and, and that some others make. Tom Friedman, mm -hmm. who is good at putting things in nice little kind of language capsules, likes to say are moving from jobs of the mind to jobs of the heart. And, and it seems to me the ability mm -hmm. humans have is that human beings enjoy interacting with other human beings. That I could have a computer teach me yoga. I mean, I don't get taught mm -hmm. yoga one way or the other. But in theory, I could have a computer teach me yoga or a computer teach me meditation, which I do want to learn. But you are going to a silent meditation class for 60 days where there are presumably people who are very skilled. And, and certainly, we already have computers that could collate online meditation information, that could read every book ever written about meditation and spit you out a printout. And then you could go off into a room on your own for 60 days and do it for no money. But you want mm -hmm. those people. You want those interactions. And I actually think a lot of jobs in the economy are like this. I think even now, many jobs are actually in some cosmic way useless. We really could just read the book, right? I mean, I believe you teach at a university. You could just have mm -hmm. everybody read the books, but people like having teachers. They like having TAs. They like being around other students. And it, it seems to me that the likeliest outcome here is that the economy, which has already been moving to be more of a service sector economy for many years now, just becomes more like that. And, and that, that what human beings are skilled at and have been for some time is interacting with other human beings. And that's something that And I don't mean to sound too Pollyannish here. I'm, I'm sort of taking the devil's mm -hmm. advocate position. I, I take your point seriously. But that feels to me like something gets underweighted in all this. And the reason that I, I take it seriously is that we seem to be there now. We already are at a place where if some of these dire predictions were true, we would see unemployment. I'm, we're in, I'm in the United States, so I think it's 4.8% mm -hmm. right now. We already have the computer technology to make it much, much, much higher than that. Huge classes of jobs that we have going on right now, like yoga teacher, like restaurant server, like cashier, already could have been automated. But the reason it mm -hmm. keeps not happening as quickly as folks think is people don't seem to like interacting with computers in that way all that much. Well, first of all, we are likely to see an immense advance in the computer's ability to read and understand human emotions better than humans can do it. Because humans understand if you go to the doctor, you want to have this warm feeling of a human being interacting with you. You basically want the doctor to understand and react appropriately to your emotions and not just to your medical condition. And the way the doctor does it, the human doctor does it, is basically by reading your facial expressions and your tone of voice. 
and of course the contents of your words. These are the three ways in which a human doctor analyzes your emotional state and knows whether you're fearful or bored or angry or whatever. Now, we are not yet there, but we are very close to the point when a computer will be able to recognize these biological patterns better than a human being. I mean, there are also emotions or biological patterns. They are not some mystical phenomena that only humans can read. And in addition, the computer will be able to read signals coming from your body, which no human doctor can do during interaction. You can have biometric sensors on or inside your body, and the computer will be able to diagnose your exact emotional state much better than any human being. So even in that, AI will have an advantage. The other point is that I tend to agree with you that there will still be in the foreseeable future need, especially for jobs like a yoga teacher. The problem there, when you look at from the grand historical perspective, is that it's a totally different story moving people from being a Walmart cashier or a taxi driver to being a yoga teacher than moving people from being an agricultural worker to being a factory worker or a Walmart cashier. What happened in the 20th century is that people who lost their jobs in agriculture got low-skilled jobs in factories. And when these jobs were gone, they got low-skilled jobs in services like being cashiers. The real problem in the 21st century is that the low-skilled jobs will disappear And we'll have a very big problem retraining people for high-skilled jobs. It's very difficult to be a good yoga teacher. If you lost your job as a taxi driver when you're, say, 50 years old, and you need to re reinvent yourself at 50, as a yoga teacher, this is going to be very, very difficult. And it's the same problem with the people who say, yes, we won't need cashiers and taxi drivers and insurance agents, but we will need software engineers who... To engineer three-dimensional virtual realities. That may be true, but it will be very difficult for a 50-year-old taxi driver to reinvent herself as a designer of virtual worlds. And if you think about all of the millions of textile workers in Bangladesh who might lose their jobs to 3D printers and robots, do you think that these millions of textile workers in Bangladesh will somehow metamorphose into Not just yoga teachers, but software engineers. The really big question is, are we giving these people today the skills, the training they need to be software engineers in 20 or 30 years? And this is especially true not of the elder population of the older population, but of the young people. I mean people who, are, as we speak, go to school in Bangladesh, they won't have jobs as textile workers in 30 years. Are they learning today in school in Bangladesh what they need to know to design virtual worlds in 30 years? I think the answer is no. And this is the big problem. So maybe there will be new jobs, but for most people, these jobs will require skills that they will not have.
I think that's true, although though I, I think so much of that depends on, on transition time and particularly transition time in other countries, right? There's that great William Gibson line that the future is here, mm-hmm. but it is unevenly distributed. And my gut is that a lot of this will take a long time and it will also take a long time in other places. But I think that's a good bridge. And I know I need to be respectful of your time here. But there's one other thing I wanted to cover, which is that the other side of the scenario you're laying out is a world in which what ends up happening is some kind of non-productive hyper-pleasure scenario. So you've been talking about virtual mm-hmm. reality a little bit here. I think virtual reality and, and there are books like Ready Player One that sort of posit this kind of universe. In a world mm-hmm. where people lose their economic utility, they retreat into virtual reality. You have a very interesting in the book perspective on the war of drugs where you say that the state tries to regulate the biomechanical pursuit of happiness, separating bad manipulation from good ones. And the ones they like strengthen political stability and social order and economic growth like Adderall for hyperactive kids. The ones they don't like take people in sort of economically non-productive directions, hypothetically, like cocaine, acid, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And I wonder if you imagine a world or to what degree you imagine a world in which we're using virtual reality or different kinds of of more pleasure drugs. I I think maybe it's not insignificant that we're beginning to see cannabis legalization in America at this point as some of these conversations swirl. I wonder how much Mm -hmm. you imagine a possible future where we are trying to manage the problem of economic irrelevance through some kind of massive societal distraction machine. Yes, I think the the other problem with AI taking over is not the economic problem, but really the problem of meaning of if if you don't have a job anymore and say the government provides you with universal basic income or something, The big problem is how do you find meaning in life? What do you do all day? And here, the best answers so far we've got is drugs and computer games. People will regulate more and more of their moods with all kinds of of biochemicals, and they will engage more and more with three-dimensional virtual realities that you'll be absorbed in them, and they will provide with emotional engagement and interest more than anything in the outside world. And this idea of humans finding meaning in virtual reality games is actually not a new idea. It's a very old idea. We have been finding meaning in virtual reality games for thousands of years. We've just called it religion until now. You can think about religion simply as a virtual reality game. You invent rules that don't really exist. It's just in your mind. But you believe these rules. And for your entire life, you try to follow the rules. If you're a Christian, then uh, if you do this, you get points. If you, if you sin, you lose points. If by the time you finish the game, when you're dead, you gain enough points, you get up to the next level. You go to heaven. Uh, and people have been playing this virtual reality game for thousands of years, and uh, it made them relatively content and, and happy with their lives. In the 21st century, we'll just have the technology to create far more persuasive virtual reality games than the ones that we've been playing for the last thousands of years. We'll have the technology to actually create heavens and hells, not in our minds, 
but using bits and using direct brain-computer interfaces. That analogy that you draw there between virtual reality and religion, I think of that as a, a real signature of your work. You draw analogies over things that are surprising, but that, that have a lot of validity when you hear it. What is one, an analogy you think people make today, constantly, widespread, about this the world we're in that is wrong? You, you talk in the book about the way that Freud and others in early psychology began to compare the mind to a steam engine and how much mm-hmm. that drove early psychology and how wrong that was. What do you think is a, an analogy people use today that is taking our thinking awry? Well, we already discussed it a bit. We tend to think of the mind as a computer and we tend to conflate consciousness with intelligence, even though they are very different things. I think the mind is not a computer. It's very clear that consciousness is not intelligence, but this analogy is taking us in the wrong way in our attempt to understand what what the mind is, what consciousness is. And this is very, very dangerous because we are gaining the ability to manipulate our brains and our minds, but we don't have a deep understanding of the implications. It's a bit like what happened in the past with our ability to manipulate the outside world. For thousands of years, we've gained more and more power to manipulate the other animals, the rivers, the forests, and so forth. But we didn't really understand deeply the ecological balance that sustains the world. And therefore now we are facing an ecological disaster. We have used our power to completely unbalance the ecological system outside us. And in the 21st century, we are starting to gain the power to manipulate the world inside us, to manipulate our bodies, our brains, and our minds. But we don't have a good, deep understanding of our internal reality. And the danger is that just as we've unbalanced the external ecological system, we will completely unbalance our internal ecological system, our mental system, and that we will face mental meltdown in the same way that we now face ecological meltdown. So then let me ask you the question we used to to close out this podcast. What are three books that you have read that have influenced you, that matter to you, that you would recommend others read? One book is Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond which really changed my career, my life in a way, because it showed me that you can really think about the big questions of life and of human history in a scientific way. Uh, It showed me that scientists don't have always to engage just with some tiny, small problem. They can really think big. Another book that really uh, had a deep impact on me is uh, Chimpanzee Politics by Franz Deval that discusses the politics of a chimpanzee group over two or three years. And it changed the way that I understand not just chimpanzees, but above all humans and and human politics. A third book that I would recommend is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, written in the early 1930s, but I think it's the most prophetic science fiction book of the 20th century. It really foresaw the 21st century. In technological terms, it's of course completely outdated. 
Huxley didn't know anything about genetic engineering or biotechnology or artificial intelligence or so forth. So it's very primitive on the technological side. But on the philosophical side, I think it's the most profound book, maybe not just of science fiction. The way it discusses questions of happiness and suffering and the impact of technology on happiness and suffering is, I think, more profound than anything I find, at least in the Western world, in the 20th century. Well, that's a great recommendation. You've persuaded me to go and reread Brave New World immediately. Um, Yuval Hari, I know you've got a, a busy day today, so thank you for spending some time here with me. I've enjoyed this immensely. I feel like I could pepper you with questions for another five hours, so I hope we'll be able to do a part two someday. Yeah, uh, thank you, and, and thanks everybody for listening. Thank you to Yuval for being here. I really, really enjoyed that. I am really going to buy Brave New World today. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production. And we'll be back next week. 